0: go to snhu.edu today to start your free application
1: I'm Alan Alda and this is clear and vivid conversations about connecting and communicating
0: When you have a book titled against empathy you get some cranky people And and what I find ironic is I get these emails saying, you know, you're a monster. You don't
1: appreciate empathy as a source of goodness. I ought to come to your house and beat you up. When I read that Paul Bloom had written the book about empathy, I was delighted. Then when I read that the book was against empathy, I thought it was a typo. I knew Paul. Years earlier, I had interviewed him in a garden at Yale where he's a professor of psychology. He's a serious person who thinks a lot about what leads to moral behavior. And here he was trashing empathy. I knew I had to have him on the show. Paul, I'm so glad to be talking to you. When I was writing this last book of mine, I was thinking about you and writing about you and reading about you because I had all this stuff about empathy in the book, and you have this wonderful book called Against Empathy. So I can't wait to compare notes with you about empathy.
0: Well, thanks, thanks for having me here. I, I I loved your book, even though it's very pro-empathy. Um, <laughs> I think I, I'll for, I'll forgive you that. Um, I, I think you know when we start talking, we realize we agree on a, on a lot of things. We're talking to some extent. We're disagreeing only in the sense that I'm talking about one thing, you're talking about another thing. On the other hand, I think there's some things that you and I might push up against, and that could That's get That's good. Addressing. I hope
1: so. My my slogan is, I don't think. I'm really listening unless I'm willing to be changed by the other person. It's kind of a radical idea. But I'll be listening for how you can change me positively in a way I don't expect.
0: I guess I'll do the same then.
1: Well, uh, that, if, if you want to, that would be great. <laughs> I'll, give it my, I'll
0: give it my best shot.
1: <laughs> yeah. So tell us your deepest Feeling about empathy. Not empathy is not the same as feeling. But just let's attack empathy first. I want to hear this. So here's the punchline.
0: I mean, we're going to make distinctions later on and get in the weeds. But here's the punchline. I'm interested in how we could best make moral decisions. How we could be good people. And one very common answer is we should use our empathy. We should be swayed by our connection with others by feeling what other people feel. And what I argue in the book is that that's really mistaken. And I'll just quickly run by three reasons. One is that empathy is very biased. I'm much more likely to feel empathy for my friends and my family and for strangers, for people who look like me, for attractive people. And so to the extent we rely on empathy, we we just turn out to be racist and sexist and biased. A second problem is that empathy is enumerate. So as moral people, we've, we recognize that 100 lives is worth more than 10, which is worth more than one. But empathy zooms us in on individuals and actually is to sort of Perverse consequences where we focus on one as having more value than 100. Finally, empathy could be manipulated. And this is actually something which comes up in the political season, political context, where um, often demagogues and people with all sorts of agendas – Evoke empathy for the suffering of some group, victims of crime, people who lose their jobs, uh, uh, people who suffer at the hands of others, and they use your empathy for that group to uh, motivate hatred towards uh, some outgroup. So a lot of anti-immigrant immigrant rhetoric, for instance, is done by telling terrible stories about the victims of crimes by immigrants and then using that to fuel your anger towards other people. So, for these sorts of reasons and others, I'm very skeptical about empathy's power and moral decision-making. But – and and in fact, I think that that we have alternatives. We can, instead of being driven by empathy, be driven by compassion, by love, by concern. And instead of making decisions based on the sway of our feelings, we could do it based on more rational deliberation. So, so my book is called uh, Against Empathy, but the subtitle is The Case for Rational Compassion.
1: So rational compassion sounds like a call for compassion triggered by rationality rather than triggered by empathy.
0: So it's a call for two separate things, and, 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 and it acknowledges what you're saying, which is that they, they, they blend together in a certain way. But you need compassion. You need to care about other people. If you didn't care about other people, you wouldn't do anything, no matter how wise you are. But once you care about other people, once I value you and want to improve your life or I want to make the world a better place, I want to give to a charity, once I'm there, I have to figure out what to do. And I think when it comes to figuring out what to do, then you need rationality. You need to weigh the costs and the benefits. So when giving to charity, if you decide to give to charity, that might be because you want to help people. You feel compassion. But if you just give to the charity that has the prettiest picture, the most dramatic appeal, you might not make the world better. You might make it worse. And so um, I think you need the rationality to tell you what to do.
1: I think uh, probably a large part of the objection or a large measure of what seems objectionable about what you say about empathy is because we haven't really defined what we mean by empathy. We don't all agree on the same definition. Uh, An awful lot of us think that empathy makes you compassionate. That it is in, and some many people think it is just another form of compassion, or another word for compassion. That if you have more empathy, you'll want to help people. That's not, r- not necessarily, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Um- I think you're exactly right. People use the term in all sorts of ways, and and some of the responses to my book are, "You moron! You're not talking about empathy. You're talking about sympathy, or you're talking about concern or identification." I did, empathy means this, and then people very confidently say what empathy means, and they all say something different, but they're all very angry and very confident. And I, some,
1: I love it. Do you, do you got you got
0: threats. I got I got to, so I, I got to say for the most part. Um, the response to my book has been great. And by great, I don't mean everybody's agreeing with me. I mean, people have engaged in ideas. Uh-huh. I, I've gotten an academic scholarly discussions with uh, with colleagues and friends. Um, I get letters from people who are, you know, say, oh, you're totally wrong about this. And we go back and forth, change my mind about a thing or two. And um, and that's great. But when you have a book titled Against Empathy, you get some cranky people. And and. What I find ironic is I get these emails saying, you know, you, you're you a monster. You don't appreciate empathy as a source of goodness. I ought to come to your house and beat you up. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm thinking there's something really self-refuting about about this sort of reaction.
1: A person living in the font of empathy himself. Exactly. You know, flowing amazing. with empathy. Give yeah. me advice and I'd be a good person.
0: And he's going to teach me a lesson by damn it. You know,
1: so. like I used to say, I hate judgmental people. They ought to be strung up.
0: Exactly. I think that, that this is a great point to introduce something which, which uh which is important, which you mentioned before, which is empathy has different meanings. And there's one sense of that where I think it's exactly true. So a lot of your work focuses on knowing what's another person is thinking. Uh knowing, well, having
1: a good estimate of it. I don't think you can have, really know totally having
0: trying, aspiring towards it. Yeah. What they're thinking, what they're feeling. And you you and we should talk about this, but you make a, a, a terrific case that in order to uh, communicate as a scientist doing persuasion, you need that. If you don't know what, how, what's, what, how another person is taking what you're saying, if you're not understanding them, it's going to be very difficult to do that. And I think empathy in that sense does something else too. If you don't know what makes people tick, what they're thinking, what they like, it's very hard to make their lives better. I mean, to think of something as mundane as giving you a present. Um, for me to give you a present, I have to know what you like. Or, or as something, or something as as general as as shaping domestic policy or going to war. You have to know what people want, or, in or order to make their lives better.
1: Giving a village a hundred toilets when they don't have water, and if the, if the toilets need to flush, exactly, it's a good and, idea to find out what they really need. And those sort
0: of examples are what I get into when I talk about for charity why going for your gut feelings is often a mistake for something like charity. You have to sort of very carefully listen to people, see what they want, see what they need, and see what will make their, their lives better.
1: There's um, no doubt that we, when we look at the way we came into the world at this point and our evolution, we come in with the ability to reason and the ability to feel out other people. We're highly social animals. So it sounds like we need both of those traits integrated in, a, in the best possible way to make any progress. Well, how does that strike you?
0: That strikes me as right. Um, I've done research with my wife, uh, Karen Wynn, and you've visited us at Yale a, a yeah, while ago. Yeah, I
1: loved her research.
0: Um, and, and and her research looks at the moral and intellectual capacities of young babies. And you find that the youngest age y- you look at, you have some. They have some understanding of the world. They're capable of some moral judgments, and um, and they have some caring for other people. Some some level of compassion. It differs from person to person. the The project we face is people trying to be good people. Um, is to integrate them properly, is to figure out. So so just to take one thing, we're very naturally drawn to help people who look like us, who, who are part of our group, our family, our friends. And for a lot of life, this is as it should be. I'm not ashamed of the fact I love my kids a lot more than I love other, other kids. But if I'm a policymaker or, or I want to sort of just do anything uh, in a broad scale, I should put that aside, I certainly shouldn't favor white people over black people. I shouldn't favor men over women. So a lot of things which are natural and hardwired, we want to transcend. We want to sort of think, well, that's not the right way to do it. That's how evolution wired us up, and that made sense. But now we have other goals, and we have to do things differently.
1: Yeah, we, we have more things to think about. The more we think we're in charge of our destiny, there are more things we have to worry about than what we were given when we came into the world. Given by evolution, we have to marshal them in some way. And if we don't, we'll be solving problems in, uh, in a Stone Age way, probably.
0: There's some line by Catherine Hepburn towards Humphrey Bogart, I think an African queen, where he just explains, why is this human nature? And she says, I don't get the exact quote, but human nature is what we're here to rise above. And and, and I think that that's
1: true. I often think that we do have destructive tendencies, but that doesn't have to define us. We have, there are things in nature, we can't, to simply say nature made me this way, so that's why I behave in a, a sexist way, a violent way, a biased way, that's not good enough because nature also gave us the common cold and cancer. And we don't settle for that. We don't think, well, nature gave it to me, so I ought to be happy I got it. We work against it.
0: I think that's exactly right. I think policymakers and just everyday people, you have to do two things at once. You have to acknowledge these facts about human nature. If you you didn't appreciate that people could be violent or sexist or racist or whatever, you're not going to understand people. You're not going to get good policy. But then we could say, okay, there's these aspects of us. How do we override them? I mean, I was born with terrible eyesight, but I have contact lenses. You know, problem solved. Well, social problems don't get solved as easily. But the logic is the same. Just because just we're we're born in a certain way doesn't mean it's inevitable.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't see empathy as a solution to our problems. In fact, there's what I call dark empathy, where I do have a pretty good estimate of what you're feeling or what you're thinking, what you're going through, what you're perspective is, and I use it against you. Interrogators do that. The interrogator is not looking out for your best interests. He's looking for any sign he can to exploit what you're going through. Torturers, salespeople, uh, unprincipled salespeople, many politicians, just what do they want to hear? How can I appeal to that whether I'm going to accomplish it or not? And it it, it, that aside, it seems to me that empathy is an almost indispensable tool for communication and at least I would say it it can really help a lot. I mean, just basically, you were mentioning this before, we have the common expression, "know your audience and empathy for me is a way of being in touch with your audience and knowing them in real time, not just in stereotypical ways. I'm not just talking to a group of high school kids. That's a generalization. I'm talking to them now at this moment after lunch when their lids are half at half-mast. And not only that, they have different opinions. They have different ways of understanding me, and I'm trying to find out what's the best way they get me. It's reading them. It's entering into who they are at this moment. So I find empathy very helpful in that regard, but only as a tool. I don't think it makes us moral people.
0: I think that's right, so we're talking now about empathy in the sense of understanding, or trying to understand, what's going on in someone else's head, and you're right. And it, One way to see it is it's a form of intelligence. So some people call it social intelligence or emotional intelligence. A
1: theory of mind.
0: Theory of mind, yeah. mentalizing, mind reading. But like any form of intelligence, it could be used in all sorts of ways. So you're totally right. If I, if I want to make your life much better, it really helps me to know what's going on in your head. if I want to make your life much worse, if I want to bully you or torture, you humiliate you, get something out of you. It really helps to know what's on going on in your head. so some of the best people in the world, I think are very good at this, and so are some of the very worst people in the world um There's nothing worse than a psychopath who really understands other people
1: and um, <laughs> yeah, right.
0: and but, but the point about teaching, and this is most of the theme, a lot of theme of your book, about teaching and communicating is exactly right. And one specific way of thinking about it, something I've done some research on with my students. It's what's called the curse of knowledge. Oh,
1: I, I love and that yes. notion. Yeah,
0: And, you know, the idea, as you know, the idea is that if you, in order to teach, I have to understand, I have to teach you something I know that you don't know. Um, I have to understand that you don't know it. But it's very hard to appreciate this. We naturally assume... That everybody that that one, the curse of knowledge is if you know something you assume other people know it, and of course successful teaching involves getting around that, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult. It's it's always we always expect things to come easier to other people than than they do because we can't discount the fact we already know it.
1: Yeah, there's this feeling in us, and it happens to all of us where you you think about the other person. Come on, this is not that hard. I got it. Why why, why don't you have it? And it's partly because we don't remember the steps we had to go through when we were ignorant of this.
0: You know, I've I've read your book. There are are stories there. I think one demonstration of it is a lot of scientists trying to explain what they do to people. which is They just can't, can't put aside the fact that they've been living in this world and have all this knowledge. And so it's just uninterpretable. The people. and it's such, it's, But you it's know, such, I have
1: yeah. the same problem, and I'm trying to help solve the problem. It's a universal problem. I'll be sitting at dinner next to someone I don't know, some big dinner, and they'll say, so well, what are you doing now? I say, well, I uh, help, uh, help people communicate better, scientists and doctors. I have this Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. And I see their brain shuts down because they don't know what I'm talking about. And to me, all of those words have meaning, and they have interesting stories, and it's a human thing I'm doing, which if, if I would remember what it's like to, to not have heard those terms before, I mean, even the word communication, they think, what, what does he mean, communicating science? What is that? And it means a number of things that are very specific, Talk, Making yourself clear to the public, making yourself clear to Congress so you can get the government to fund science, making yourself clear to people in your own lab, making yourself clear to people in another discipline who are almost in the same position as an, an educated layperson, but not they don't speak your language. So I suffer from the same thing. It really takes effort. Just to, th- to think, wait a minute, who am I talking to here? And this is where I find empathy helpful. Who am I talking to? What are they going to? What does that look in their face mean with the first sentence I say? They're in trouble. I got to help them out of that trouble because I'm not going to understand what I'm saying. It's not to help them so much as to be be able to be yeah. clear.
0: Yeah. And, and I, I think when you succeed at that, there's actually rewards. There's rewards. Beyond, people don't think you're boring and walk away from yeah, you. Yeah, that's a big reward. That's a that's a big reward. <laughs> um, uh, but um, but there's also the reward that um, it's often a challenge to get your ideas clear to somebody to have the the, the cognitive empathy to the understand theory of mind to to make it click. But but when you do when you make your your ideas clear and solid and concrete, often you kind of look at what you said and say, "Wow!" So I guess that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, and right and. You know, sometimes a lot of people in my business find don't like doing that. They don't like teaching introductory courses. They don't like talking to the general audience. And then some, I think there's a lot of things going on. It's very, as you said, it's difficult. But another thing is, I think they feel if they put their, what they do in plain English, they realize, oh, that's not that much. And yeah. And, um, yeah. and it could be, it could be humbling. It could, I, I've um I, I've given talks at my uh, my my son's uh, school to you know to to eighth graders. And then they ask me questions like, well, who cares about that and everything? I I don't know. (laughs) It's it's very challenging. (laughs) I'd, I'd rather talk to my colleagues who, of course, will nod and play along as we do. Yeah.
1: The idea that somebody might not care about what you have to say is a really important idea. Why should they care? Just because you do it every day doesn't mean they should care about it. You care about it for some reason. Why do you care about it? Yeah. If you can get back to that, then you're on a on the road to a human connection with the person you're talking to
0: that's right the the dumbest thing i've ever heard an administrator say i was at yale and somebody was giving me a lecture on um, on how to communicate to the public and he said what people want to hear is of stuff that's of practical value Having to do with their pocketbook and their sex life and so on, and I'm thinking, yeah, people like to hear that. Mm-hmm. But you think of the most popular books and popular speakers. You think of Stephen Jay Gould who talked about dinosaurs yeah. and Carl Sagan who talked about the universe. It's hard to imagine less practical
1: topics. <laughs> what but to do with your dinosaurs? For, <laughs> do, yeah, yeah you know,
0: how exactly how many stars are there? Uh, that's really going to be very helpful.
1: Um, but but. People
0: love that stuff. I think in part because Gould and Sagan and successful communicators capture the excitement, and and despite what this administrator who'll remain nameless said, um, people are really interested in interesting things. They're interested in science. They're interested in how the mind works and how the universe is structured and where dinosaurs come from and so on. And if you could if you could convey this with the excitement, it's just it's just irresistible.
1: I had expected a little more of a wrestling match with Paul, but now here he was agreeing with everything I was saying, and I was agreeing with him. I asked him to try his best to attack empathy in a way that I just couldn't accept. And he was ready for me when we come back.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess...
1: This is Clear and Vivid. I'm Alan Alda. And now back to my conversation with Paul Bloom. All right, we've been very gooey agreeing with one another. I want, I want to hear you tell me something that I find hard to accept. What, what are some of the more uh, inflammatory things you can say about, about empathy that, that I might not go with?
0: I'll give you one. Um... I think if you're prone to put yourself in other people's shoes, not just understand them, but feel what they feel, it will make you less effective as a helper, less effective as a good person.
1: Okay, that's that's pretty, that's not not totally inflammatory, but I no, feel the I, heat. There's a little, I, little a l- heat l-
0: l- A little touch of it. Yeah, um, so go ahead. So um, why
1: is that true, do you well, believe?
0: It's actually, it's, it's an insight that that the Buddhists had. A long time ago, Buddhist Buddhist theologians would always ask the question, how could you be a good person? And what they say is, look, don't go around with what they call sentimental compassion, which is what I call empathy. Mm. Don't feel the suffering of others because it will burn you out. They talked about burnout centuries before somebody in the 70s made up that term. Um, It will exhaust you. Uh, I got I got emails when I started writing about empathy. I got email from somebody who uh, who worked at uh, at in, in the nine the, eleven the 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 towers and she couldn't do it. She spent a few days there and it just killed her. She just felt too much anxiety, too much pain for the suffering of people, and so she wrote me saying, you know, I I now kind of understand based on what you're saying what's what's up here, which is that I, it's not that I I ca- didn't care, it did, cared in the wrong way. It's that I felt the pain too much. Mm-hmm. A lot of studies show that if you feel the pain of those around you a lot, you'll withdraw, you'll develop physical symptoms, you'll become miserable, and maybe worst of all, you'll start to focus on yourself.
1: And that happens with doctors now. Almost half of the of physicians are facing burnout where they're emotionally exhausted. They don't have a feeling of accomplishment. They're withdrawing from empathic uh, care. And they tend to make more mistakes. The Errors are born of that disengagement to some extent. But here's, here's the thing. I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I'm back with this gooey agreement with you because everything you said makes sense to me. With the addition that I think it's good practice if you're helping somebody to get in touch with their their empathy radio or their transmitter or whatever, to, to, to the mm-hmm. empathy engine, to get to rev that up, you really should help them know how to get into the empathic stance and how to get out of it so you're not swamped with the emotions of the other person because it's quicksand. You can go down deeper and deeper and deeper. you got to be able to take care of yourself to take care of the other person. It's like they say on the airplane, put on your... Oxygen mask first, and let the little kid wait until you got yours on.
0: And and people who are good at helping other people, um, therapists, for instance, good therapists have the sort of distance. So in some way, to put this in, you know, <laughs> to try to be as inflammatory as possible. And yeah, please, you and got some, to try harder. I've got to try harder. This is so, so unusual to find somebody who agrees with me. <laughs> is um, is to say, don't listen to your heart when it comes to making moral decisions, and. Almost paradoxically, the best way to help people, people you love, people you care for, people you're, you're professionally assigned to help, is to get some distance from them. So a good therapist cares for her client, understands her client, but doesn't feel her client's pain. If I go to my shrink and I'm having an anxiety attack and I'm all anxious and I'm all crying and everything, I'm so I, I don't want her to burst into tears and say it's unbearable, it's horrible. <laughs> I, I don't want her to give it's me that. It's a funny day.
1: scene. You just it is a good
0: it's scene. A, it's yeah. a great sketch. You know, we're both <laughs> weeping. I I bring her over to kiss. is that "You okay?" She says, it's so your life is so awful. I, I can't I can't bear it. But 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 you know, if she's good at her job, but she does, she gives me the sort of shrink look and she just stares and says, "So how does that make you feel?" And I'm thinking, well, don't you don't you want to cry with me? But you know, I, it's not effective. It's 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 bad for her. Sure. If she, if she if she met you know 50 minutes 50 minute sessions, eight people a day, people in the most extremes of sadness and misery, and it felt all that, she wouldn't last a week. But it also makes her ineffective. And even for a friend. If I come to a friend and I'm really messed up, I want my friend to care about me. I don't want my friend to get engulfed in my sadness.
1: Yeah. It, uh, I had a friend who went to a doctor with foot pains and the doctor looked at the foot for a minute and then Thrust his head into his hand and said, "Oh my God, you've got plantar fasciitis." <laughs> she thought she had an incurable disease. <laughs> A couple of good foot pads would cure it, but yeah, had he, he, he had dark. had it once, and he he understood what her pain and discomfort was going to be, and got swamped by it. Yeah, but on the other hand, see how this strikes you. It seems to me that the more empathic i am toward other people and i work on it a lot i i look people in the eye i try to pay attention to their face while i'm talking to them i find myself better able to observe them and pick up their their signals so i i like empathy a lot i use it but what i notice is that it also makes me aware of my own feelings more and when i'm in a state that's mainly dominated by my feelings i'm having a an emotional reaction to somebody I'm talking with, I hear a check on that from the rational part of me. And the same thing goes in the other direction. If I'm I'm figuring out a problem, and, and probably especially one having to do with people, how do I handle this difficult person? A check on the rationality comes from the emotional stuff boiling in me. There are checks and balances going on between feeling and rationality. How does that strike you?
0: You're saying something I've actually never heard before, but seems right. Which is the act of doing that can make you more clear on your own thoughts and feelings. The,
1: I, th- I think it does.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think it does too. I, I think to some extent it's a little bit like mindfulness meditation, where mm. where often we just get caught up in things. We're just kind of sw- you know swaying with these these strong feelings, and. But if I'm going to slow down and hear what you have to say and try to make sense of what's going on, what are you, what are you getting at, what are you worried about, that slowing down lets me get a bit of distance not only from, from looking at a perspective on your feelings but also on my own. It sort of slows things down and steps back. I like the checks and balances analogy there.
1: And, and I guess we have to be aware all the time of the difference the distinction I think we both make between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy, for me, is being trying to be aware of what the other person is thinking, whereas emotional empathy is trying to be aware of what they're feeling, what they're going through. And two of them together add up to a perspective perspective. You can take on or try to take on the other person's perspective, the thing they may not be saying in plain words, but how they're responding to the world and to you. So I chop things
0: up slightly differently, though. This might just be terminological. What I'm most interested in my book and most worried about isn't so much to attempt to understand or to appreciate, but more the sort of catching the feelings of others, getting getting caught up in their fate.
1: Ah, see, so, I, that's that's the, that's a big difference because I look at it as a tool, not as a condition that I fall into. It's, it's right. it can be it can be a trap in the jungle right. and you can't get out of it. Getting back to the notion you you talked about earlier on that you tend to make bad decisions using empathy too much. For instance, if you, you, you're you more concerned about the baby trapped in the well than you are about the millions of babies starving at the same time in another country that don't have a camera on them. So is, is that one of the primary dangers, you think, of having, having what is it, having too much empathy or making decisions based on empathy? What's, what's the problem? I think there's problems with
0: having too much empathy, but my main concern is broader than that it's It's making decisions based on the sort of human connection based on on being caught up in other people's feelings and other people's worries and dread and sadness. It's so easy for me to imagine the suffering of somebody just like me, you know. A uh, uh, white guy uh, uh, speaks English, born in this, in this land, maybe a professor. That's a person who, "I just so get caught up, I get so upset worrying about somebody like me, because that's the way our minds work. What about somebody starving to death in sub-Saharan Africa? Eh. Uh, what, you know, it's, it's hard for it to move me. What about a hundred people? A thousand people? Emotionally, nothing. And, you know, and this is common sense, but there's also a lot of science behind it. But
1: when you come to the rational realization that the moral thing to do is to help the people starving in South Africa, is it possible for you to come to that totally rationally? Can't you have, don't you need some element of resonating with the suffering that must be taking place in, in specific instances when so many people are starving?
0: I don't think so. I think what you need is you need to care about people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be giving charity in the first place. You know, I sometimes give money to Oxfam, and I don't give as much as I should. But I give some money to Oxfam, not because I imagine what the good it will do, and I think about it, but because I've been persuaded that that money makes the most difference.
1: How do, how were you persuaded? What ah. there was there was an appeal to your intellect alone. I, I find that hard to believe.
0: It actually it actually and, and this may be it may, it may put me out as strange but it was there there's there's websites like givewell.com that rank charities and say this is this one will do the most good. You give to this malaria one or this one involving small villages. So that's maybe.
1: that's based on numeracy in other words this will do the most good because the greatest number of people will benefit or
0: what? Well now now we get to some really difficult questions of how you measure good. And there's really hard questions. So simple numeracy doesn't seem right. The simple extent of benefit doesn't seem right. But I think as rational people, there are some, there are some questions that actually do have answers. So this is an example of philosopher Peter Singer. For sum of money that's not enormous, you can uh, allow 100 people to have operations that will, that will restore their sight. that are blind, but they can be cured of a simple operation. Should you do that or should you give the same money to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to add to their, their coffers? So they'd have
1: something to look at. <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's a quick response.
1: <laughs> see, um, see, there's a reason for
0: everything. You know— um, and and so I, I think there's some I think some there's all sorts of reasons we give to charity. We want to impress people. We might want to do something to increase our reputation. But if you really want to help people, you know, there some things do more good than others. Look, I'm I'm a professor at Yale University. I know people. I, I sometimes meet with donors, like they they you know there's a ring where I'm supposed to meet with a donor and talk to a donor. And I always wonder, you know you're going to give a million dollars to Yale? Really? You know, we have a <laughs> lot of money. Not to
1: send you out asking for money. <laughs> yeah, it,
0: just, there's there's, at some point, there's a dean at Yale listening to this and saying, you know, damn, I'm crossing me off a list. <laughs> but I, I really feel that way. And, and, you know, if you ask people, why are you giving a million dollars to Yale? They often say, because because I feel t- emotionally tied to the place, because yeah. of this, because of that. But but the truth is, giving, giving to Yale is like giving money to the Canadian federal government. They have a lot of it. Um, and a and million dollars could make an enormous difference to people's lives. And you don't have to sort of put yourself in these people's shoes and everything. Like that. I don't have to imagine what it's like to be blind and then to see, to know that it's a really good thing.
1: Yeah, that's true. But I think of how, no matter how intellectually satisfying it might be to cure the greatest number of people with blindness, the way you even hear about it is liable to be to have an emotional content that gets into your head and makes you resonate with it. For for instance, um, children programs that that feed children or educate children in another country often use stories and pictures yeah. about individual children. So that we now is that because we're sick with too much empathy and they should rather do it in a more orderly, intellectual way? Would they be as successful?
0: No, they wouldn't be. I think we're imperfect creatures, and if somebody put me in, somebody that's foolish enough to put me in charge of a charity, and I advertise for it, I choose the cutest children, and I would put pictures up, done, show them pictures and movies, and do the same thing every other charity does. But here's the thing. Um, as people deciding where to give our money and where to give our resources, we should be aware that that the cuteness of the picture and the persuasive tactics actually are kind of disengaged from the good the charity does. There's a lot of charities which have gorgeous stories and wonderful pictures and all sorts of perfect techniques, and then you look at them closely and they aren't making things better. Some are making things worse.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that, so that, that's why you need. The, I think these checks and balances where you l- respond, however you do emotionally, but then you check it against research. So, I, I share your your distrust of of the emotional, totally emotional dis- decision. But you go. I, I just remembered. I I wrote down something you said that you you and and this this I think we could disagree about. I'm desperate to find something we don't agree on. Here. We'll get there. Yeah, <laughs> we just have to keep trying. You talked about um, empathy. I think as. Um, something that feels good and that there's maybe people might think there's good empathy and bad empathy like cholesterol good yes. cholesterol and bad cholesterol but you said it's it's not cholesterol it's sugary soda tempting and delicious and bad for us that's pretty extreme
0: it it is extreme and this is and and you say and it, it sounds very reasonable we should have a combination of uh, empathy and rationality when deciding how to act, when deciding what charities to give to and so on. Um, if you start looking at modern politics, you see empathy all over the place in appeals to you know, support this, go against this, arguments over health care. Which incredibly complicated and, and seems to be the case where rationality would would be needed the most, are often involved politicians reaching into their breast pocket, pulling out a letter, and say, "I'm going to read you a letter by a seven year old." Yeah. And I think as an audience, we should go boo. <laughs> yeah, you well, know, I we agree. We were idiots.
1: They're so cynically presented. There's cynically the lady presented. up in the
0: balcony. <laughs> Every State of Union speech—I don't yeah. know when it started—Democrat, Republican, uh, Obama, Trump—they have people in the balcony. Let me now point out to this guy who lost all of his children due to gun yeah, violence. Stand up and take a bow. <laughs> <It's not even laughs> Look, this man lost his wife to Obamacare. <laughs> you know, and right. you know, this and, one
1: lost even more children. <laughs> that's
0: right, that's right. and I, you know, they wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Well, but but, you know, but just like they—they they believe it works anyway. They work, but we could also step back and say. I see the pull that this has, I reject it.
1: Yeah, that, that's a, uh, I, I see what you mean now. That's a really good argument. You changed me a little.
0: I changed Just a little.
1: Yeah, nothing serious. <laughs> 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 well, I always, as I said in the beginning, I always hope to be changed by something I don't agree with. Huh. But it's not always the obvious statement on top. I don't necessarily agree with what you have to say, but I might be moved by and... Agree with and be inspired by what's underneath that. What makes what brought you to that conclusion is maybe your hope for a better world. I mean, as we talk, as you and I talk, part of our part of what we might not agree about is that I don't look at empathy as a way to make the world better or to lead people to moral behavior. I just look at it as a tool for communication. Your complaint about empathy is mainly based on your idea that that's not the best way to have a moral world. That's right. So we're not so much in disagreement. But I love your, your veering toward a, a better world, that you're putting your thinking into how can we be better people. I think that's wonderful.
0: And I like the idea that you're talking about. It's, it's nice of seeing empathy as a tool to achieve certain ends. And, oh, well, uh, this, and, and this
1: finally got so gooey like we got, and, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, our time is is up now and I've had a wonderful talk with you I hope it leads to more talks over a glass of beer sometime Thank you so much for inviting me here so we do these seven quick questions at the end if you, if, you, if you don't mind <laughs> sure okay number one what do you wish you really understood
0: sports? Uh, I know some sports, but I I really wish I was really into, like, you know, the the major sports. I feel that would give me, you know, it's it's a source of pleasure I I haven't been connected to.
1: What do you wish other people understood about you? (laughs) Um, About me.
0: Um, My good intentions. (laughs) That you really have. I really have good
1: intentions. (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? I was on
0: a radio show to talk about my book on, um, on the psychology of pleasure, and I was just on the phone. I had no idea who we are, and the first question the guy asked is, um, have you uh, accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior?
1: And you were talking about the psychology of I was talking about pleasure.
0: the psychology of pleasure, and I, had no, he just asked, and I found out later he just asked all those people that question, and I, was, and I said, No. And, and then he said, well, do you believe in God at all? And I said, no. And then he said, well, we forgive you. And then he continued to interview. That's but that, that was a So good to one. know you
1: got his forgiveness. Yes. How, how do you stop a compulsive talker?
0: I actually tend not to. I'm, I'm often, I think, in social situations somewhat quiet. So I often like compulsive talkers because I could just, like, listen to them.
1: You have too much empathy.
0: I, I this is actually you you say that uh, sarcastically but um but part of the book is self-therapy which is I'm always feeling other people's pain and getting in trouble for oh, it. Oh that's
1: that's the that's the most interesting thing you you said today. <laughs> I love that. Is there anyone for whom you just can't feel any empathy? Yeah. I I sometimes encounter I honestly
0: never in my everyday life, but but you read about these people, you hear about these people who some tiny proportion of the world who seem to have no goodness in them, no soul. Honest to God, psychopaths. And I can't imagine what it's like to be them.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Um, <laughs> I think the...
0: Best way to deliver bad news is to get someone else to deliver it,
1: and <laughs> the and the, the pigeon. I'll,
0: I'll whisper into the pigeon's ear and say, "Fly, my pigeon, fly." Um, the dance dancers. I if I could all do it, email.
1: Ah, yeah.
0: I, I've never broken up with anybody by email. I, some things you have to do in person, but um, but email because I could carefully craft it and then and then send it.
1: Well, I'll be watching for a pigeon in my mailbox. Yes. What, this is the last question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Um, the truth is I might be
0: unusual in that way, but it would take a lot. I know people who say, oh, if I discovered my friend was racist or sexist or committed a crime, I would ne- dissolve the friendship. And I understand that. But I actually, you know, you have to say really, really bad. I just recognize that, that people are complicated, and there's a lot of evil in all of us, and it's part of the package.
1: Great. Thank you so Thank much. you. I really had a great time. Thank that was you. a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you. When I first heard about his book, I thought Paul Bloom and I were going to be on opposite sides on the value of empathy. Turns out Paul and I have more in common when it comes to empathy than I first thought, His book is called Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion, and it can really stimulate a conversation. Paul, who is the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University, is the author of seven books in all. He's also a frequent contributing writer for the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times, the Guardian, and the New Yorker. This episode of Clear and Vivid was produced by Graham Chedd. Our associate producer is Sarah Chase. Sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Koston. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to my podcast for free at Apple Podcasts. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter, at Alan Alda. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.
2: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
1: Next in our series of conversations, author Letty Cotton-Pogrebin tells me how she loves to organize people into groups.
2: You could call me like a group groupie. (laughs) I love forming groups. When I'm in the middle of an experience, it occurs to me, gee whiz, look, we're all sort of going through this. Why don't we create a space where we can talk about it further?
1: Author, feminist, and champion organizer, Letty cotton Pogrebin on bringing people together, from women in focus groups to Israelis and Palestinians in the Middle East. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts.
2: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up with Friends.